grace and peace to each one this morning. The story is told of a man that was setting up a vineyard. He made huge investments to make it the best, uh, to establish it and secure it, to put in irrigation, have the best vines, a tall fence to keep the, out the deer and a strong low fence to keep the wild hogs out, I suppose. And he just did everything that he could to have a really good vineyard. But the end of the story is that he didn't get any good grapes. They were all unfit to be used. And so it was all kind of for loss. I came across that story this past week in my daily devotions. It's found in Isaiah 5, and it's the story of Israel and Judah. That's what he says there in about verse 7 when he, uh, at the end of that. And my question is, what's the story of your vineyard or of the vineyard of Hillcrest? Some of us are part of Hillcrest. We're all a part of Hillcrest this morning. Uh, what is the, the, the return on investment in the vineyard of my life? You know, God was a, a gardener from the very beginning. Think about the Garden of Eden. It, you know, the whole world was one huge, perfect garden. No weeds, no pests, no rain, no drought. And I'm not sure what all Adam and Eve did to dress and keep it. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't hard work. They didn't have to sweat to do it. But God's a gardener. And if you thought about this, on the third day of creation, God created the plants, all the plants. Grass, the Bible uh, specifically mentions, and fruit trees. But he didn't create the sun until the next day. On the fourth day, he created the sun, the moon, the stars to help that garden to grow. So I'd like to think together this morning primarily about the first part of John 15. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John 15, and this is talking about a vineyard or a garden, uh, specifically a vineyard, I guess. And I'd like to take a, a close look at this as we go through here, but to set the stage, I'd like to ask a question for you to think about. And don't answer it now. The question is, are you saved? Let's think about that as we look at the first part of John 15. Are you saved? But first, before we do that, I'd like to 
just share some thoughts about studying the Bible that, have been, that I've been learning recently, that I've thought about recently. First of all, a question for you, and you can respond here. Does the Bible need to be defended? We need to defend the Bible. No? And why do you say that, Doug? Because... The truth is going to stand. The Bible has stood for centuries. God has preserved it for us. But that, that's not the only right answer, as you suspected. The Bible does need to be defended. What does it need to be defended from? Any thoughts on that? It needs to be defended from my preconceptions from my presuppositions, what I think, uh, what I already think that it says. So what are some common errors maybe that are, are common in, in Christianity today? Uh, presuppositions, the ways that people think that the Bible means that might not be actually true. Do you think of any? Probably a bunch. Are you used to interacting like this in church? I thought of several. Uh, I thought of two extremes that I think are pretty common in our world today. And one is that what matters most, what really matters, is what's on the inside. And the other is, well, what really matters is what's on the outside, what I do and how I look. So those are glasses through which most people look at the Bible and so that's what they see when they, when they look there. So which is more important? Let's, let's think about that as we take a look at John 15. Another question that I've wrestled with, which is more important, being or doing? Being right or doing the right thing? Which is more important? Probably figured out by now there's more than one right answer. Let's think about that as we look at the story of the vineyard in, in John 15 and, and talk more about it later. There's a couple different ways of studying the Bible that I wish I would have, I mentioned them because I wish I would have uh, learned about this when I was the age of most of the staff here. This week, it's 49 years that I came to be the sole maintenance man at Hillcrest, joined the staff here. And there's things that I now that I wish I would have known as a, as a younger man. There's 
there's deductive reasoning, there's inductive reasoning, and they're, all, and they're both good ways of thinking and figuring stuff out. They're ways of studying the Bible, and kind of opposite ways of studying the Bible, actually. And one's not necessarily better than the other, although one comes more natural for, I think, all of us, at least it does me, and I need to do the other as well. I'm, I'm kind of uh, learning. So when, when, when you have your private devotions or when you're asked to share uh, meditation or uh, publicly or anything like that, you know, you can either uh, take a topical approach. This is a, something I want to talk about, forgiveness or whatever, and, and then I assemble all the verses, the scriptures that talk about that, and the examples um, usually includes the, some aspect of the life of Joseph. You know, that's, there's a lot of, uh, there's that, and, there's, and that's a good way to do it. That's not bad. There's the, that, that's more the deductive. The inductive is more taking a look at the details and then going out from there instead of starting with the big picture and then hunting the details that, that go with that. Taking, and we can do this in our private devotions, you know? I feel anxious, so I read verses about anxiety. And, and that's okay. Uh, on, 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 de on deductive, but on inductive, we take a look at what, what this scripture is saying, like Tom was talking about. Allow the word to stay with us in a rich way. Looking at the context, uh, figuring out inductive study involves figuring out what the original author was trying to communicate to his audience, to the original audience. So that's, that's kind of step number one, uh, observing and, and asking, what does it say? Secondly, interpreting that. What does it mean? And the third step is application. What does it mean to me? So let's jump into the text of John 15. Sometimes we have a text and then we jump out of it, but let's jump into it. And invite your questions and feedback as we go, but perhaps mostly at the end, just kind of to save time. So what is the, let's first look at the context here of this, uh, the first 17 verses of John 15, which is what I'm going to kind of zero in on this morning. What's the, what's the context? How did it, what was going on here? This is Jesus to the 11 apostles between the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane. This this long discourse, which actually starts back in, in chapter 13. What's cha John 13 about? What's there? Yes, thank you. It's about feet washing. It's about 
humble servanthood. And that was the kind of the, well, that's what's happening there at the Last Supper, at the end of, of Supper, 1 through 17 of, of chapter 13. And then starting at verse 18, he talks about his betrayal and, and foretells that. And then he dismisses Judas Iscariot, and it says he went out, and it was night. He, he pointed out to them who's going to betray him. Jesus, uh, Judas, I think, as I read over this again, he took the sop. He, he, Jesus said, who I give it to, that's who's going to betray me. And Judas reached out his hand and took it, apparently. And he knew what he, was, what he wanted to do. He'd already made up his mind. And, of course, Jesus dismissed him then. And verse 30 says that it was night. It was dark. I mean, it was past dusk. But think about how it was in Judas's heart and his mind and his life. It was night. And then at the end of chapter 13, starting at verse 31, there he talks about, uh, he, he, he tells them that Peter is going to deny him. And then in 14... Uh, the first eight verses, he comforts his disciples. That's where that favorite verse of, of ours, hopefully, is verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. That's who he is. He is he's still today the way, the truth, and the life. And then in, starting in verse 9, he talks about he and the Father being one. Uh, in verse 15, he equates love with obedience and, and talks about his peace. He says that the, he and the Father will come to us, abide with us, and, and love us if we love him and if we keep his commands. And then twice in, this, in, in chapter 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. He starts out the chapter that way, and then again in verse 27, he repeats it, let not your heart be troubled. 27, he talks about leaving them because he had already decided to prove to the world, prove to us, that he loved his father. And how do you, if love equals obedience, he was committed to obeying his father, even though he didn't want to, because he loved him. He says that there at the end of, Chapter 14, and in the last verse, he says, okay, let's be going. Arise, let us go hence. And I think probably upon that, they got up from the table there in the upper room and filed out into the night, Jesus and the 11 apostles. And they walked uh, toward Gethsemane, to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we have... Uh, this allegory that we'll take a look at more, more closely. It's kind of the middle section of this discourse. The last part of chapter 15, starting at verse 18, he says that the world hates us because we belong to Jesus and because they hated him. And then in verse 26, it says, the Holy Spirit is going to show us Jesus just like Jesus showed us the Father. 
Do you see how they serve humbly? None of, neither of them says, look at me. Jesus said, I, I do and say exactly what my father wants me to. I'm, I'm here for him. The Holy Spirit came later, of course, and he doesn't talk about himself either. He shows us Jesus. That's actually one test that we can have, whether it's the Holy Spirit or not. They both serve humbly on the team. In, verse, in chapter 16, he warns them of sufferings in the first part. And then in verse 7, he talks about the Holy Spirit's ministry and asking in Jesus' name. <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 29 of chapter 16, it's, um, he, the disciples profess their faith in him. And he promises them two things, peace and affliction. You're going to have troubles, but I give you my peace. That's the end of chapter 16, and we know what chapter 17 is. The whole, the whole chapter is what we call the high priestly prayer. It's, God's, it's Jesus' prayer to his Father for himself, for his apostles that were around him there, and for us, he mentions us as well in that prayer in chapter 17. And then the first verse of chapter 18 says, When Jesus finished these words, he went with the disciples over the brook Kidron and into the Garden of Gethsemane. So they, they got there. When he finished talking to them like this, they, they crossed, uh, went through the Kidron Valley there and into the Garden of Gethsemane, just a base of the Mount of Olives. How many of you have been there? I know Keith's have been. Others? A number. When, uh, when Elsie and I were there in June, we saw this in this grove of trees there in Gethsemane, a really big one that is thought to be 2,000 years old, very possibly. And so that that tree could have been there when Jesus and his 11 apostles crossed the brook there and came into Gethsemane there. Don't know, of course. That's where they went. <clears throat> so let's look at Maybe this is going to work better over here. I don't know. I brought an arrangement for a, well, for pretty, and partly because kind of it is an object lesson. And I'm sure that interior decorators would say that we should probably balance it out with kind of two similar arrangements so that it doesn't look so lopsided. That's kind of the difference between attachment and detachment, abiding and not staying there. So let's, I'm going to be reading the first 17 verses in the New King James, and I don't know what version you have, but whatever it is, please follow along and then compare as, 
as we go. So John 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch, and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, command you that you love one another. So as we look at this briefly, let's, let's watch for warnings, for promises, for, for definitions, for statements of fact, for commands. Everyone is going to obey Jesus. Most people are going to wait until it's too late. But these are commands, and we, can dis- and we decide whether we are going to obey now or later. So, I am the true vine, Jesus said, and my father is the vine dresser. The father is the farmer. He's the, the keeper of the vineyard. He, Jesus got all his instruction, his power from his father. They had a, a close connection. And Jesus is our connection with the father, the mediator. He's our intercessor. So we have introduction of the characters here as we look at this verse. We have the father. We have Jesus, the son. We see how they're related. And I, I, yeah, I guess I don't have time to really... To, uh, to give what I think is a, is a good example or a, uh, uh, of that. So we have here the, the introduction of the, these characters here. And then verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So what is fruit? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It could, we find it in Galatians 5. So here we have a warning. 
Every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he takes it away. And we also have an alert if we do bear fruit. We're going to be pruned. We're going to be, uh, there'd be some cutting either way. But one is to cut off. And the other is to enhance the fruit, make it more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. If we're a believer, if, then, then we've already been cleansed. We've been washed by the word of God, like Ephesians 5.26 says, washing of water by the word. That was true for them. That's true of us if, if you're a believer, if you've accepted Jesus as your own and have joined his kingdom. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you, as the branch can't bear fruit of itself, except it abides in the vine, you can't either, unless you abide in me. So here's a, a command. Jesus and the Father want us to bear fruit, and there's a statement of fact. The only way to do that is to stay attached. It can't, we can't unless we abide, which means to stay there, have that vital connection. <clears throat> Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Again, for without me, you can't do anything. So he says, he kind of has two facts here, or actually four. He says who he is, who we are, the vine, the branches. And then he who abides bears much fruit. But if we don't, we won't bear any. I mean, just nothing, really. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. <clears throat> and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. This is a warning. You know, there's a common, common glasses through which people read the Bible today is what I would call unconditional Eternal security. We are secure as believers, but it's not that we, um, it's not, it's conditional, not unconditional. Uh, John, <clears throat> John 10, 28 and 29 say, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He goes on to say in the next verse, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no one is able to pluck them out of my hand. Satan himself can't pluck us out of God's hand. It's our decision. It's up to you and to me. We're the only ones that can cause us to leave that safe place. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. It's a promise. Why are we so 
afraid to trust Jesus, to, to commit that thing that we just kind of don't want to. Why are we so afraid to let God have that? He's, he has our good in mind. He, he wants the best for us. Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of your heart. Delight in, in God, and he'll give you what you, need, what you really need and what you really want. It's a promise. Verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so you will be my disciples. Disciples bear a lot of fruit. So this is an encouragement. If we bear lots of fruit, much fruit, he says, we are his disciples and the Father is glorified. But it's also a warning. If we don't, we aren't his disciples and the Father is not glorified. Verse 9, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So, a new commandment, he says in John 13, 34, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. And then, a favorite verse of mine, 1 John three sixteen. It's easy to remember because we all know what John three sixteen says. And this, 1 John three sixteen says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We're to follow his example and do for others as he has done for us. It's a command in verse 9 based on his example. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Obedience equals staying in his love for Jesus and for us. It's a promise with Jesus' example. Verse 11, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full, abiding joy, staying joy, fullness of joy. We have, he says here, the reason that he's telling these things to his apostles, these 11, is for their benefit, so they can experience real joy, fullness of joy. And he also, John recorded it, the Holy Spirit recorded it, so we can have that as well. That's the reason for this, this discourse. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Do you kind of hear this coming back again? He repeats it actually one more time as I've loved you. He laid down his life for us. That's how we're to love each other. Greater love, in verse 13, has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And he was just on the verge of doing exactly that, literally, for them. This was just before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion, to which he gave himself because that's, that's what the Father wanted. It's a, it's a definition of, of true love. You are my friends, in verse 14, if you do whatever I command you. And, you know, uh, it's not, he's not authoritarian. He's, he's authoritative. 
he's, Jesus is the, the perfect leader, the perfect commander. It's the definition of a friend here in verse 14. And then in 15, I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing, but I've called you friends because all that the Father told me, I've told you. And I think maybe this is more true of them than it is for us. It applies to us. But he had been with them for three years all the time. And he had showed them. He had uh, demonstrated and taught them all that the Father wanted him to A true friend shares God's word with them, and that, that's true for me, for us. And then he says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Well, he, as he was going along by the seaside or by the tax booth, he chose them, but then they chose him. They chose to, to follow him, and that's how it is with us. God calls us, and we choose whether we follow or not. And then in verse 17, he uh, repeats that command that he said in verses 9 and 12, love one another. So as we look at this passage, what do we learn about God? What do we learn about man? What do we learn about salvation? What do we learn about the Father and how, they, how Jesus and his Father related together? I wish we had time to have some dialogue about this, about this, but I see the clock is moving on. So think about what we learn about God and about us. So which is more important, the inside or the outside? If a person doesn't have the life of God in both, that person is not really a child of God. It takes both. Right? So which is more important, being right or doing right? There again, it's not a matter of either or. In this case, it's a matter of first and second. It's a matter of order. So which is first and provides a foundation and context for the other, and which is closely connected but secondary to the first? Being always has to come first, but it can't just be alone. It can't come by itself. It has to be followed with then doing. Is this statement true? A person cannot be right with God by doing the right things, but a person cannot be right with God without doing the right things. We don't become right by doing the right things, but we can't stay on the vine unless that works out in our lives. And we, we do what he says. Another, <clears throat> another way of saying it is, the only way to bear fruit, and we see this in this in, this, in these verses, the only way to bear fruit 
is to stay on the vine. The only way to stay on the vine is to bear fruit. They go together. You can't have one without the other. It's not a matter of which is more important. We've got to have both. So what does this passage mean to me? It answers the question, are you saved? So what is the answer to that question? Are you saved? Yes, but not yet. Yes, if you're a believer in Jesus, you're saved. You're on your way to heaven if you're walking in the light. But not yet, because I could still fall away. I could have uh, followed Jesus for decades and lose my salvation. That's possible. So yes, I'm saved, but not yet. Salvation is a, is a threefold process, past, present, and future, spirit, soul, body. We're saved from the penalty of sin conditionally. We're saved, being saved from the power of sin and will be saved from the presence of sin. First, uh, second, Colosh, uh, second Corinthians 1.10 is a verse I came across recently that says this. Who delivered us, past, from so great a death and doth deliver, present, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. All three phases are right here, are, are mentioned there in that verse in 2 Corinthians. So what is the return on investment of God and Jesus in the vineyard of your life? Do you want to be alive? Because this was attached to a, tr a tree at our house till very recently. If not, we're going to look like that in our spiritual life. I'd like to open it up for any comments or questions before I turn the time back over to Brother John.